laced. It's a laced mic. It's laced with some sort of gooey red, gooey red red. Which thing are we doing here? It's a condiment. It? Just, oh, okay, okay. It's a yummy, yummy condiment. Oh God, what is that? Oh my God, is that? Is Polynesian that, sauce! Is that live-action Sonic the Hedgehog? No, keep him away. <laughs> Hello. Welcome to We Bought a Ketchup, a condiment pop culture condiment cast. Mm. What up, what up? This we- week, Johnny Rockets. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm Ernest. I'm Hunter. I'm Drew. And we bought a ketchup. We have we have a lot of ketchup this week, actually. We really do. Uh, it's a thick ketchup this week. Yeah, it's 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 like fresh out of the bottle ketchup. It's very viscous. Like yeah. somebody, it, they didn't shake it up well to begin with, so they got all the liquid stuff at first. We're ve- we're actually at the bottom. Yeah, where like it's just all the ketchup is just settled. Yeah, together. you got to put a little water in there to kind of rinse. You the have bottle. to like really like bang the shit out of the bottom of the. Yeah, it's gonna be a crusty one. Yeah, yeah. it's gonna be a very crusty episode. We got some news first though. Okay, and first up, Avengers is destroying. All the competition, yeah, I, it, at the box office. Our play from last week already has two billion plus listens because every person who sees the movie listens to the podcast. Yes. Every yeah, dollar course. that it makes, yeah, it's a listen. So two billion dollars worldwide already. Already, it's been, it's been we're, like two weeks. We're recording this on May fifth. Happy Cinco de Mayo, um, hey. and this is Sunday, and it's already at two point, pretty much two point two mil. And by bill. the time that you're two point two bill, by the time that you're listening to this next weekend, it could be closer to like two point five. Well, in its second weekend already, it made a hundred and forty five million dollars, which is like for a second weekend, for a first weekend, that's already huge. Yeah, for a first is, weekend, that would already make the top ten of summer yeah. movies. I mean, I I went to see Longshot this morning, and there was like eight a.m. showings for Avengers that were packed. Yeah. So okay, am I crazy or? A few weeks ago, I feel like we were talking about Avengers box office, and I was like, am I crazy, or is this going to be the highest-grossing movie of all time? And I... Call me crazy, but I feel like you guys were like, no! (laughs) What? I don't think that happened. (laughs) I'm pretty sure you're making up a scenario right now. (laughs) I feel... No, I'm, I'm... Half joking, but I feel like I brought this up and everyone was like, ah, no, I won't be that so good. So my concern, I still, I thought that it always had potential. I thought it was going to be on Infinity War. I thought I had a chance to beat um, The Force Awakens, or yeah, yeah, The Force Awakens, um, for being like one of the top three, top five biggest things ever. But I didn't know what the drop-off was going to be for like the average fangoers, because this is a three-hour epic that... The first hour of it's super slow, but I've been like really, I've been doing a lot of like field studying this past week and just like asking random people what they think about it. And if they want to see it a second time. So like a friend of the pod, uh, one of my coworkers, Ryland, I asked him about it because he was just like, oh my God, yeah, I forgot to tell you, like I saw Endgame and I was like, oh yeah, what'd you think? He's like, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. I think that might be the best movie that I've ever seen in my life. And he's like, it's three hours, but like, I really want to go see it again. And it was like one of those things where it's like, yeah, okay. Did like, people this is... say that when like Titanic came out. Yeah, I mean, yeah, people yeah. said that when Avatar, Titanic, when these movies come out, that they're like wow. the best ever. Holy but shit. I mean, this is look, it made a hundred and fifty million dollars. This is the Gone weekend. with the Wind of our generation. Uh. <laughs> I mean, so, so yeah, man. Never forget that part where <laughs> Iron Man pushes Cap down the st- 
pregnant cat down the stairs. Um, generally, Marvel fatigue was actually i think bigger over a year ago before infinity war came out it's like it seemed to me back then that the public perception was a little bit more like okay marvel like we get it we've seen them uh and then infinity war came out and absolutely switched everything homecoming was a big uh not just box office hit it was a like everybody who saw it liked it essentially uh, and I think it kind of reinvigorated into Black into Ragnarok. Which oh did yeah, well to Black Panther. Yeah, didn't, like... yeah. Not even talking about Black Panther, which was both a smash and beloved. So I think that just general Marvel love was reinvigorated before Endgame. Plus, if you saw Infinity War, it's not debatable whether or not you you have to see Endgame. If you're even mildly invested, you have to watch Endgame. Yeah. So. I feel like just because you're left on a cliffhanger. Yeah. So unlike any of these other movies, this movie had everything going for it money wise. And then it delivers on its own premise. If you look at the at the box office mojo page, it has so many records at number one, like all time worldwide, all time uh, worldwide opening top seven day gross uh, fastest to 400 million fastest to 500 million single day saturday like just all across the board number one it's the number one time travel movie of all time <laughs> sorry spoilers for endgame if you haven't um, seen it yeah it's everybody's the, seen it at this it's point. Be, it's, it's beaten the leftovers in terms of like rapture content yeah, yeah. i'm pretty sure but, it's barely beat leftovers in viewership is it the top meme movie of all time. No, before we, before that was a sweet transition, but before we get to that, I just wanted to say, cause you were talking about Marvel fatigue, Marvel before this past weekend has already passed $20 billion over their 22 films. Phase three alone was at like averaging 1.1 billion. That was with pretty much just like the first weekend of Avengers, yeah. they're gonna average like 1.3, 1.4 billion for the phase three it's, movies. It's like, like it's not even fair. Like they're it's just absolutely printing insane. money. Disney um, is right now. So Ernest, if you could do your transition again, that'd be. But great. is it the top meme movie of all time? Wait, so I had another point I wanted to bring up before. Yeah, we and I, w- I just wanted to say, what are you fucking talking about, Ernest? <laughs> We're That's talking horrible. about the latest entry in the Marvel Sega Matic universe. Whoa. I- Okay. Sonic the Hedgehog. (laughs) Why not? You had a lot of good stuff prepped for this transition. (laughs) That one was off the cuff. Oh, no way. (laughs) Holy shit. So it it feels like a lifetime this past week. In the past week, since the last time we recorded this podcast, we had a new trailer for Sonic come out and meme backlash and a statement from the producer saying that they were going to redesign the look of Sonic the Hedgehog in the upcoming movie, which is still, even though they said that it's coming out, that that they're redoing it, it's still coming out the same yeah. time this so year, in have, November, October. So RIP to the VFX crew. Yeah, have we talked about this <laughs> at all yet? No, that's what I'm saying. That like, it, I think it's been in the past week that the trailer came yeah. out. Yeah, the trailer, well, before that even, there were stills from the movie. and there was The legs. There was a lot of uproar in general about his, you know, his face. Everyone thinks it's a little bit too anthropomorphic. It doesn't look like a cartoon character. Uh, we don't generally know why you would veer away from having your character look like himself. Uh, and then they put out the trailer, which is probably, I would say what, like a month after these stills came out and there was yeah. already plenty of rage, uh, and they didn't change it. And a lot of the time these calls come from top brass, maybe above the director, maybe we're talking like executives, producers, mm-hmm. whoever, 
Um, and now guess who has to suffer is the animators. Yeah. Because uh, animation in movies is not a unionized uh, sect of the industry. Which needs to change. Yeah, of course. Every single movie has like heavy visual effects. Yeah, so they're already working absurd hours and not getting paid enough probably. Uh, and they are literally, you know, you can say it about Hitler, you can say it about animators. They're just following orders. <laughs> not not Hitler wasn't following orders, I He guess. was giving the orders. Maybe, yeah. Nazis in general, is that so what you're going for? That's, Sonic, that's my take. No, Sonic Hitler was following anti-Semite? Hitler was following orders from Sonic. <laughs> yeah. And so, you heard it here first. And Max Keeble was pulling the strings the whole time. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I mean, I'm glad that they're changing it, but it seems like the problems in the movie are deeper seated. Well, than yeah, exactly. It's going to have more problems than how it looks. And I don't know, I, I don't love this world that we're in now where now, like, it's the same thing that happened with Christopher Robin where the first trailer came out. People were in uproar, not half as much as this yeah. case, but they were in uproar about how Pooh Bear looked too gray. Yeah, he looked like a crusty doll. So then they changed him to make him look too bright and then people were like, I don't like how that looks. He looks too bright. So then they just found some middle ground. Yeah, which he just looks like a worn out toy. I, but I think I, the design is atrocious. I'm sorry to all the people that worked hard on this. I'm sure that there were a lot of why? meetings about the it. The teeth, man. I just keep coming back because like it's the everything. eyes, the it's eyes the, are weird. The hair looks weird. The legs, the arms, the the shape of the body. Well, Sonic is supposed to have like big feet. Like it also doesn't. It doesn't help that big head. It doesn't help that we're getting next week a like realized view of Pokemon in the world and that actually for the most part looks really cool I like the way that mm -hmm. Pikachu looks and that you can kind of see the hairs on like somebody like Charizard or something like that but to see like that's it done right and then to see what they did with Sonic it is just well, like an abomination but that is what they were going for uh and the reason that they're going for it is again I was talking about the problems with the movie itself they are trying to put uh, Sonic into a semi-grounded reality. Yeah, James Marston. Yeah, Eggman is is played by Jim Carrey, who's obviously going to be over the top. That's it, yes, that was what I was going to say is the highlight of the trailer is that Jim Carrey is doing full Jim Carrey shit, and I'm yeah, on board with looks that. Good. But but the thing is, if you're so, I guess their rationale was we're putting Sonic in a in a reality that's somewhat like a normal reality, so he has to look a little bit more like a, a human, kind of like they did with Pooh Bear. Mm. He has to look more like an actual teddy bear or Pikachu. He has to be hairy but they didn't even make him look like a hedgehog they made him look like a well that's, person yeah that's yeah. the flaws they they really they missed on all angles of that because they made him look more like a person i'm sure some sect of the furry community is really happy about that yeah others are really really mad maybe Sonic... there's a whole backstory in the film that explains <laughs> that maybe it was a, a little boy who fell into a radioactive yeah yeah blue electric <laughs> they're gonna like they're gonna yeah. create the the genesis of hey, I mean, Sonic. Plenty of furries are also pedophiles, so <laughs> I'm I apologize to all our furry listeners out there. Not all furries. Hashtag. Uh, but yeah, it it's just a miss. He looked bad. The way he talked, the way his mouth moves when he talks, his teeth. It's Benny Schwartz. And it is it, yeah, yeah, it's Ben Schwartz. It doesn't sound like him. Uh no. It, not, it's, he's going for something very kind of grounded. Yeah, and like not his usual not, manic. Yeah, self. and like not funny. <laughs> here's my Which way. Is really a mistake. Here's my way to fix Sonic the Hedgehog. Give it the Space Jam treatment. Make Sonic Full an cartoon. actual cartoon. Who framed Roger Rabbit? Who gets? Just throw Michael Jordan in there. He can act it up. Give him 
the the lead guy role, or just make him Eggman. Who knows? We could have a black Eggman. This you know, is 2019. That's not a terrible idea. I uh, space to Jam put was... Michael Jordan in all of your movies. <laughs> Because that's that's my case of how that's also how I'm going to fix the long shot is that I'm going to put Michael Jordan. Space Jam was on the other day and I watched and like, he's actually just shooting long yeah. shots. I watched yeah, I watched the scene where uh, they're like doing the the big game at the end and Bugs Bunny just puts water into a uh, a water bottle and he labels it with like secret special juice yeah. to trick all the tunes into thinking they're like super powered. And that whole scene in the locker room with Wayne Knight and Michael Jordan, it still holds up. That movie's like 20 years old, and the animation, it, it still works. Yeah, because cartoons don't, like, they don't get bad. Like, you don't go back and watch old cartoons, like, old hand-drawn cartoons, and think, like, oh, that looks like shit now. Yeah, they don't have like, to do, like, do, detailed fur or anything. Yeah, you, like, we do that all the time, like, with every people try and do, like, 3D animations. Because the thing is that animation's only gonna keep getting better, like, But they were still, animation. with Space Jam, they were still able to give the characters a, a sense of, like, three-dimensionality, even though you could tell that they were the 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 2D style, mm-hmm. they still had a sense of depth to them. So you don't have to do like a flat character in a three-dimensional world. There's a way to do it so that it works. Yeah. And I mean, I'm upset with the world that they've cho- chosen. Uh, I mean, this is happening with plenty of movies because it is a lower budget option to just put the character that, you know, formerly lived in this absurd fantasy world into real life because then you don't have to make the fantasy world. Yeah. Which is uh, a lot of dollars. But... I mean, I'm not. I haven't been like a huge Sonic stand. I'm not like viscerally upset like a lot of Is people anyone? are. Yes, are pe- pe- people are fucking furious. Uh, and other people are furious. <laughs> Sonic evidently is the most sexualized cartoon of all time. I, That's insane. Yeah. Uh, I Based on I've Pornhub, plenty... I thought it was like Lois Griffin. <laughs> I've really, I really like, I've, I've written a few fanfics of my own where like me and Knuckles just ride off into the sunset together. Yeah. She says, oh, you know that, why you call me Knuckles? That reminds yeah. me, I really want to <laughs> see the gross anthropomorphized versions of Shadow and Knuckles and Tails. Oh, it's, God. It's Ugh. just, it, I'm not upset on that level. Level, but I am upset that they are putting him in this world where he's driving in like an Audi with James Marsden. I that upsets me more, and the fact that Eggman is some like military affiliated, like evil guy who like operates out of a steel RV. Like that is that's what's more upsetting to me. Like the, you can't fix that by redesigning yeah, I, the. Yeah, the like I, I'm not a huge Sonic fan, but I did play a good amount of Sonic Heroes on the PS2. Oh, oh yeah, and those those Sonic maps that you race through are really rich and like they're original and they exist outside of our world. Like, mm-hmm. they're, yeah, and, you're right. And I get that you know it's a lot more budget if you have to CG an entire universe, but if you're not going to do that, just don't make the fucking movie. That's my opinion. It's the same thing I said about Dumbo. Just do it all CG or just don't do it. Mm-hmm. All right. Well. Sonic the Hedgehog, you're a you're a slightly gross, hot, furry thing. Let's move on to okay. man. You prepared that one too, huh? That transition. Let's move on to our ketchup corner. Um, I'm gonna go first this time because I always get stuck at the end. Wow. And I have to rush through my shit. No, so fine. I'm going first this time, and I'm gonna start off. With a little bit of Fosse Verdon on FX. Mm. Um, I talked about this before. It's the show with Michelle Williams and Sam Rockwell as uh, Bob Fosse and Gwen Verdon. And I, I talked about how it approaches this very 
familiar story about a tortured artist, but it does it in a really cool stylistic way. And now that we're about four episodes in, um, I went into this show knowing a little bit about Bob Fosse and who he was and the stuff that he worked on and that he was this, you know, shitty guy that was very artistically, uh, you know, artistic genius, but terrible man. But I didn't know anything about Gwen Verdon. And this story has explored her character really well. There's one whole episode devoted to her and her troubles and her backstory. And Mm. Michelle Williams in this role is phenomenal. Absolutely, like, give her all the Emmys. Fantastic. Um, so I'm really glad that they're they're kind of equally portraying these two characters and not just focusing on the legend Bob Fosse and kind of showing, like, yeah, this guy made some really great films and shows, but he was a terrible, terrible man. Let's also see the woman that was, that was by his side and kind of, like, gave him the opportunity to become successful. If it wasn't for Gwen Verdon, Bob Fosse would have kind of just been a failed dancer, mm. a nobody, and she was the one that had the connections and the the star power, really, because she was a star before he was. She was a huge, successful Broadway dancer, and it was her who kind of positioned him to become the great uh, award-winning director that he became. So... Mm. I really appreciate that whole side of the story. And again, the style, the pizzazz of this Ooh. show is so good. It it injects all of that, um, the theatricality of Broadway and, and musical theater, the over-the-topness of it all, into the way the story is told. Love I was it. wondering, when does the show take place? Is it like it jumps early around? On? Oh, okay, that's yeah, cool. It okay. jumps around. It's I didn't not know if linear. we were gonna, I didn't know if we were going to see like pre like cabaret or like post well, like all that jazz kind of style. So it hasn't or... gotten to all that jazz yet because okay. that's kind of like a little bit later on in his career. But we have seen plenty of cabaret, and uh, now this latest episode that I saw digs into his time doing Pippin on Broadway. Okay. Um, so that's how he fought. He won a bunch of awards for cabaret and he followed that up with Pippin on Broadway. So Mm. it, it, the, the chronology of it is again, jazzy and it, it doesn't stick to this set linear timeline. It, it chooses to tell its, its stories per episode, depending on what the theme of that episode is. So the the last, the last two episodes, we had one that was all about Gwen Verdon and sort of her story and her troubles and her past. And then the one after that was all about how Fosse is just this womanizer and how he created this environment with his cast where he kind of slept with every single female person in his cast. And if there was a woman in the cast that like put her foot down and said like, no, this is going to be a professional relationship. I don't want to have sex with you. He, um, he punished them for not wanting to fuck him and he was like harder on them as a director and uh gave the opportunity to another dancer who did sleep with him yeah semi semi relevant uh storyline there yeah <laughs> so really really terrible terrible man and i'm i'm glad that they're that they're showing that because his uh uh, uh and verdon's daughter is involved in the production of the show now as as an old lady and she is basically like okay with her father portrayed in this way because she's probably like yeah 
go for it. Show how terrible he was, yeah. even though they're also showing how uh, much of a creative genius yeah, he that, was as yeah. well. That's 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 really interesting. So I really recommend the show. It's Fosse Verd on FX. Um, I think we're about halfway through the season, so I'll touch on it again. Uh, next, The Twilight Zone oh, on yeah. uh, CBS All Access. I think we're about five or six episodes in at this point. Yeah, I think that episode six or seven just came I out. I think this we're past seven. Week. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, overall, I'm disappointed in mm. this show. It it never it never reaches this level of satisfaction for me. It doesn't deliver on its amazing concepts. Every episode is just this really creative, interesting idea, and it never delivers on it in my opinion it's always very kind of clumsy even though you have like solid you know set design and imagery and cinematography and like aesthetically it is really really strong and compelling there's other aspects of it that never quite land for me from the the acting to the writing um you know crucial crucial parts of the show that just don't do it for me. And I haven't seen an episode that I've been able to say like, yes, that was that was a fucking hit. The one that that came the closest was the Adam Scott one that I talked about when he was on the airplane. That one really kind of grabbed me and captivated me. But all the other ones, we had one about a, a lady with a camcorder that could rewind time. And it really tapped into this kind of toxic relationship between uh, black people and, and white police. Um and then there was another one with Steven Yoon as this like mysterious man who infiltrates a small uh, police station in Alaska and mm-hmm. some uh, weird intrigue there. Then there was another one with uh, Jacob Tremblay as a little boy that runs for president and um, John Cho is his campaign manager. And then there was this latest one uh, about a um, mission to Mars a space mission to Mars that goes horribly wrong and just like the weird shit that happens on that mission. So it's always an interesting, cool concept to explore, but it never, it never grabs me on like a deeper level. Mm. See, so I, I, I actually, I feel like I enjoy this show a little bit more than you. Um, I really, I have not seen uh, episode five or six. Six is the one that just came out. Um, but, uh, I absolutely loved episodes three and four replay. Um, the one that you t- talked about um, the camcorder with the camcorder yeah. one. I thought that one was just so interesting because it really kind of reset like what exactly it is that uh, you're watching on the show. And also it has kind of a happy ending to it, which was very unexpected. That really caught me by surprise and had me like, yes, this character that I wanted to make it through, they actually did the thing. Um, I really, really loved that one, and I loved A Traveler, the one with Steven Yun. I thought that that was it. Maybe it could have gone like a little bit further, but overall, I was really satisfied. By His it. performance and is incredible. Greg Kinnear also as yeah. this police chief. Yo, Kinnear! I yeah. just I'm a Greg Kinnear fan. Just put him in everything. <laughs> we like, stand Kinnear on the I pod. fucking love Kinnear, especially um, as a cop. Going back to his Brigsby Bear days. Just give me more Kinnear. Wait, I want to. I want to talk about this for a second. So Kinnear plays this chief of this like small town police station, 
And Stephen Yoon is this mysterious traveler who said uh, there's a tradition at this police station where every Christmas Kinnear pardons a criminal as like a Christmas gift tradition. And Stephen Yoon comes in as this mysterious traveler and he's like, among all my travels, everyone was so excited to hear about when I would visit the famous police chief in Alaska with his famous tradition of pardoning Captain Lane Pendleton of pardoning a, a <laughs> criminal on Christmas Eve as his tradition. And it, you you, uh, you just get this like nice moment of Kinnear like feeling like, oh, my God, people know me. They appreciate my tradition. I'm so important. This small town guy in this tiny and obviously Alaskan there's something town. up here that this is going to go this population of like. 500 people maybe to yeah. go be pardoned by this cop but overall i really love that one um i'm i'm in on this show i mean it the first episode is by far the weakest one with camille uh but i would actually put i would rank the episodes i've seen i'd say it's three four two one did you really like the adam scott one i liked it a lot um but I mean, I've I've liked all three mm-hmm. of the episodes I've seen except for the first one. The first like, one I still like. I thought it was solid. I mean, Kumail just, is great in yeah. it. Yeah, he's just not. It, I've never I'd, like there hasn't been a bad episode yet. Which usually with an anthology show, you're going to get some stinkers in there that just aren't um, as good. To me, um, it's just it's it just it's clumsy. I don't know. It's it's clumsy. That that Stephen Yoon one. It it had a nice vibe of just like creepiness of you don't know. There was who a this real sense is. of mystery to it that yeah. like you really are intrigued of what's going on. But by the time the episode ends and it's revealed what it actually is, it didn't leave me on a note of like wow, what a great revelation, what a what an amazing uh, journey that this episode was, and and note that it left on it. I was just kind of like oh, oh okay, <laughs> that's that's. That's cool. Well, I mean, everything, like, even going back to old Twilight Zone episodes, they would use stuff like aliens or whatever else to, like, kind of explain some other, like, make create some kind of metaphor for uh, human behavior. Um, so that's kind of always been a common thing with Twilight Zone episodes, and that's why I thought that the way that that is handled in the Stephen Young episode was actually really good because, yeah, it's like... Spoiler alert for the episode four of Twilight Zone, but Stephen Yeun's character is an alien. But they use that as this kind of analogy for uh, kind of what humans will do to get ahead in this world and who you're willing to bend the knee to in order to kind of advance yourself. And I thought that that was uh, handled in a pretty solid way. To your point about the metaphor aspect and the allegory of all of the approach that the Twilight Zone usually has to social commentary the Jacob Tremblay episode of him becoming president is so on the nose about Trump uh, and just, you know, it's like too much. It's like Trump is a child. We have a child president. Orange man is just a little whiny baby. And Drake and Josh already did that. Well, yeah, (laughs) it could have, it could have, I honestly kind of would have liked it more if it would have been more metaphorical and kind of out there. Not as on the nose. And it doesn't, yeah, it just, it's a cool concept, right? Like little boy, whiny, bratty boy becomes president, kind of exploring the repercussions of that. And, you know, it's not bad. None of these episodes are bad. It just doesn't – I don't feel like I get as much as I could out of these really interesting concepts. Okay. I don't think they, like, really maximize the potential. Okay. Yeah, that's that's, that's fair. fair. That's fair. Uh, All right. What's next? Last up. I marathoned 
season one of Big Little Lies mm. on HBO. It's only seven episodes. When, when did it come out? 2017 or 18? Yes, 17. 17? And it won five Emmys. It won Best uh, Miniseries, Best mm. Director, Best Supporting Actor, Best Actress, and Best Supporting Actress. Yeah, it had a lot of hype. Yeah. yeah, so I've been waiting and waiting and waiting to get around to this, and now that season two is right around the corner, I was like, okay, I gotta get into it, and I didn't think that I was gonna tear through the whole thing in one day, but I could not help myself. <laughs> Lee and I uh, put it on together, we watched three episodes in a row, and we were like, okay, we, we gotta take a break, we went to the gym, had dinner, came back. And we were like, Humble okay, we're, we're we're just gonna we're just gonna watch one more, just one more. We ended up watching the rest of the season. <laughs> Stayed up late, and oh, it's so good, guys! It's so so good. It's like, let me paint this picture here. It's mm. it's this this very particular picture uh, snapshot <laughs> of the Southern California rich gossipy moms and it elevates that and it exaggerates that to murderous levels so it's kind of is it like a prestige version of desperate housewives yeah yeah it really it really kind of has <laughs> probably that with sort less of... uh, less fucking too i would guess well okay so <laughs> am i spoiling one is, of <laughs> one of the main components of this story is abuse and uh emotional abuse and physical abuse and this is a little tee off to our long shot discussion um or listeners if you've already heard it you, you'll know what i'm talking about alexander skarsgård uh this man mm -hmm. just looks like he will fucking kill you like he looks creepy yeah he looks like a psychopath most killer. honestly most russian actors <laughs> they they are a little scary yeah. they have that inherited ptsd just russians in general yeah yeah like, and this well, guy, i didn't want to go sorry, there sorry russian yeah. listeners of the podcast i wanted to but, keep uh, it to actors and this sake of this guy he plays nicole kidman's husband in this in the show and he gets very, very violent in this show. And basically the way the plot sort of I, I want you guys to see it, so I don't wanna uh, Yeah, don't don't spoil get too far, it. Yeah. But the way the plot kind of starts to to uh, revolve around is this relationship between Nicole Kidman and, and her husband and how abusive he is. Uh but the performance of this guy is really good and just the way uh Jean Marc Vallet uh, directs it and the editing and the writing is just so strong that he this man doesn't have to be beating the shit out of his wife for hit for you to think he's terrifying he can be nice and loving and caring he can be a fun cool playful dad to his children and the whole time you'll still be fucking scared shitless of him so it, it's not like you're just scared of him when he's being violent you're yeah. scared of him all the time okay. no matter how what kind of emotion he is emoting yeah so 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 this cast is insane oh yeah um, so we got reese witherspoon shailene woodley nicole kidman uh laura fucking dern, dern. yeah um 
Adam Zoe Scott, Kravitz. The Zoe Kravitz. Uh, Meryl Streep. <laughs> Meryl Streep is not in season one. Oh, okay. She's okay. joining. Yeah, she is joining. So uh, that's the other question I had is, does this is this season like conducive to another season? Do you want more? Honestly, I'm so glad that there's more. Okay, Because good. the way it ends, and this is a, a discussion that Lee and I had as soon as we finished the episode, is like, it's kind of a what the fuck ending that leaves you like a little bit unsatisfied. And there are certain things to kind of put the pieces together if it was the definitive ending and kind of have an interpretation of what actually goes down in that final episode. But the fact that we are getting more just makes me it, – it, it's very – it's a relief mm. that I don't have to – that it doesn't have to be left up to my yeah. imagination and interpretation. That, that was the big question I had because it was a miniseries. It was marketed as one. It yeah. was always called one. So I'm wondering if – It was so successful that yeah. they went forward with the season Yeah, two. but it's it's good that it isn't one of those things where it's like, God, no, just leave it. You know, that happens a lot. It's just like, no, just leave it there. But it's good that uh, – it actually well, ended on a note that yeah, you want more i mean i kept i kept uh um comparing it to sharp objects because it's the same director and sharp objects famously has this big what the fuck uh recontextualize everything ending this one doesn't quite have that it's not as like definitive as like boom everything you know you knew was different it's not like that but it does kind of like make you scratch your head a little bit and be like, hmm, let me let me kind of think about things a little bit more. Was was it just how I saw it? So there is that still that little bit of kind of the the shock of the final episode twist, but not as exaggerated as as it is in Sharp Objects. Uh, overall, I think Sharp Objects is a solid notch notch above this, but it's also a much more different show because Sharp Objects puts you in the headspace of Amy Adams and of that character. Big Little Lies is an ensemble and you basic you essentially have three leads mm-hmm. in Reese, Shailene, and Nicole Kidman. And they're all equal equally great. I think my personal favorite is Nicole Kidman, just because of her whole storyline of abuse and dealing with it and, and yeah. coming to terms with it. And well all. we don't really see her enough. Right. She doesn't right. she's very picky with her roles. But she's really really yeah, great that, that's yeah she's and amazing. shailene woodley really really impressed me i did not think she had the chops to, how, how to stand toe to toe with these other actresses and she definitely uh, she, does she stood toe to toe with the clune bag didn't she with clune dog yeah yeah the clune bag in what <laughs> in the fucking hawaii movie white oh, family oh that's right white the family Descendants. dead mom hawaii yeah. yeah yeah written by jim rash uh also laura dern plays like the most over the top filthy rich mom mm. ever like she just shrieks her way through this role and you know you could just see it as a very surface level like snobby shrill rich lady but it's Laura Dern so <laughs> she adds yeah. this weight to it and this kind of like compassion to her like she is a really shitty rich lady but sh- somehow you kind of feel for her and what she's going through uh, also, some other points. The child acting in this is stellar hey. all across the board. There's this Good. one little girl that is uh, – she's uh, Reese Witherspoon's girl uh, – Reese Witherspoon and Adam Scott's girl. Phenomenal. Uh, Adam Scott, bearded Scott, daddy Scott. He's great, great. Uh, gets plenty of, of great Scott – Pantheon Scott moments here. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, there's one moment where he uh, does a little bit of Elvis Presley cosplay. 
and it's uh, quite arousing. Um, and finally, the um, the yeah, just taking a step back, kind of what I the point that I started on of like this tapestry of this town and the gossip between all of these people that live here in, in this town of Monterey, California. Uh, I found that they did a really good job because it, it's similar in in to Sharp Objects and how it gives you like this flash editing, mm-hmm. um, and some t- in, in Sharp Objects it always flashes to the past and gives us like flashbacks, but in here it actually flashes to the future, and we see these police interrogations of these people that are being interviewed about the fallout of what happens in the story Mm. about the events that we're seeing play out and at first i wasn't sure about this because uh, these people aren't main characters at all but it it just kind of fills out this sort of backdrop of these people who are just in each other's business and who get so much entertainment out of like putting their noses in other people's shit and and you know digging into into shit that's not anywhere near close to their lives but that's just kind of like what this community is that they're all just aware of everyone's dark you know secret bullshit and there is this violent underbelly to it all um but there's also this kind of dark humor too there's a lot of funny funny stuff in this show it's not all just kind of morbid uh you know, abuse, violent shit. There's plenty of mm. laughable, humorous stuff. So it does a good balance of, you know, selling the um, the dark, serious abuse storyline and filling it in with this kind of almost wacky, ridiculous, uh, you know, uh, high class suburban uh, family mm. town stuff. So, so highly recommend. Cool. So, highly recommend. Yeah, looking better, forward to you think John Mark Valet did a better job with this than with Sharp Objects? No, no, no. I I said I'd put Sharp Objects a, okay. a solid no- notch above. Okay. But I still really enjoy it, and the performances are all amazing. And like I said, Alexander Skarsgård is this like looming, uh, really terrifying presence on the show. So right. it it adds a really interesting dynamic. So Big Little Eyes. That's what I've been. Uh, ketchuping who's next hunter yeah um so i'm gonna be very brief with my first one on here um this week i saw book smart a few weeks early um not gonna really say too much about it because i know we're gonna be talking about it on this pod because uh this might be the best movie of the year so far oh wow yeah um Adam, I, Adam called it a masterpiece i really like i was hyped up for this movie and it's still kind of met and surpassed my expectations. I mean, the best way I've heard it described is it's super bad meets Ladybird. So if you like those two things, then you're probably going to yeah. love this movie. That's definitely what they were going for with the promotional materials. And it, it had me very interested. Yeah, I mean, let me tell you. And Beanie Feldstein, of course, is yep. literally from Ladybird, but she's the super bad character of Ladybird. Yeah, so, Beanie Feldstein yeah. is amazing. Caitlin Denver, who's uh her Co uh, lead actress in this movie. They are both amazing. They have a great friendship chemistry. It's just, it's really awesome because, uh, so I rewatched Superbad um, this past week uh, due to us talking about best Seth Rogen things. And one thing about that movie is that there is a lot of the stuff in it that's, I won't say it's aged poorly, but it's like, 
it's kind of the whole eighth grade point of view that Bo Burnham talked about where he's just like, yeah, you know, like girls actually have like are much more interesting. Teenage girls are much more interesting than teenage boys. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of one thing that Booksmart has over this is this kind of dynamic where they actually seem like they care about more things than just like trying to fuck and granted i fucking love super bad i love that it's movie. just uh it's from but, a different era yeah but this it feels it feels 2019 there's um lgbtq uh characters that are just there and it's not like they make a big deal out of it it's just it's something that just exists in society and it's mm. like yeah this is fine avengers did um, it first yeah yeah you're right um <laughs> Olivia Wilde. The direction of this movie is incredible for a first-time director. It really was giving me vibes to eighth grade and just like how whenever we first saw that movie, we were like, how does Bo know what he's doing here? Yeah. Maybe she learned from her time on House uh, what good <laughs> direction was. Definitely. And yeah, also, I, think, I think that was hey, it. Very sweet of her to throw her little hubby a bone and cast him in the movie. Little Jason Sudeikis. Yeah. Hey, he oh, sweetie, Sudeikis. you're so good, Jason. Wait, did you see he this He actually, too? he gets a great um, little part of uh, this where he's he plays the principal of the school, but he, at first I was like, oh, that's cool for that one scene for Jason Sudeikis, but then he comes back later in the movie in a really cool way. Um, I'm just, I'm always a sucker for like that the one last night kind of genre of things mm. of like, this is the last night before we graduate Let's high school. Go crazy. Let's go crazy. I'm always in on that. Like as long as it's actually done well, then I'm, I'm sold on this whole thing. Drew, did you see it? Nah. Oh, okay. Um, didn't get, to yeah, it. I love this movie. I can't wait for it to talk about it. In depth. Yeah, we're going to review it. I can't wait. Like after this movie ended, I was like, shit, I wish that this was out because I literally want to go right back into the theater and see it. Yeah. Like, as soon as it was done, I was like, "All right, let's rewind the VHS." That's how tape I felt with, with Lady Bird. Yeah. yeah, it like, does come out in a few weeks, right? Like, yep, it comes out uh, May twenty fourth. It comes out wide release. Listeners, go see that as soon as it comes available in your area because we gonna be talking about it. Yeah. Here. Hey, Beanie Feldstein. Fun fact: Jonah Hill's sister, stepsister. Uh, I don't see a difference there because yeah. I'm I don't see steps. <laughs> um, next up, I know that you've seen this one drew I we're gonna talk I, about i have a lot of thoughts the latest uh netflix series that's coming out that's been getting a lot of buzz from comedians on twitter and that is i think you should leave with tim robinson it's getting so much okay buzz. like so everyone this, has been posting about this show it. had the lead on netflix feed for like over a week not even triple frontier held it for like two days but like that's how much buzz the show is getting yeah and I can't believe that this show that like a lot of just random people are liking this show because like this show is so fucking weird. It's like it starts out as an SNL sketch and then it just goes batshit crazy. Yeah. It's like if Kyle wrote every SNL sketch, but he had no limits from NBC yeah. and he could just do whatever he wanted. So yeah, I want to talk about Tim Robinson's career arc because it's very interesting. He he was on the cast of SNL in twenty thirteen. He was a regular cast member. But uh, after a year, he got demoted to writer, uh, just speculating. It's probably because he has a very, quote unquote, unconventional look to him. <laughs> he's ugly. He's a really, yeah, he's, he's not a guy you can just stick in a sketch necessarily. <laughs> but he's so, so funny. Some of his sketches were my, like, absolute favorites from that year. That was one of the last, like, half-decent years of SNL. Uh, so he does this show on Comedy Central called Detroiters. It runs for two years. It had similar acclaim from comedy people on the internet that are plugging it for no like career obligation reason just because they like people it. love it because he 
is a comedian's comedy writer. Like he he is writing things that are like three steps farther than the normal joke would be. It's like what you were saying with uh, what's his name, Bargatze. Yeah, kind of, but a lot more insane than that yeah. guy. Uh, every episode of this is di- co-directed by Akiva from The Lonely Island. And then what? the other co-director is Alice Mathias, who has produced Portlandia and Documentary Now. Mm. So, Well, yeah, I forgot to mention when I talk about Documentary Now that Tim Robinson is the third bowler in any given Saturday afternoon. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. It's a, it's a triple threat episode. He's very in with the SNL crowd. Everybody who's worked with him absolutely loves him. Uh, so we have only six episodes, and they're short episodes here, but this is one of my favorite sketch shows I've seen in my entire life, and I've seen just about all of them. Like, it's in my top three. I want to see it so It's so, so good. I it's only six it. episodes long. The episodes vary. Some of them are like 16 minutes. Others are like 20, 22 minutes, but it's very easy to just watch right through. That's I just busted up because I watched the first three episodes, and I was like fuck there's only three episodes left i need to like i need to stop myself now so i can continue to enjoy this yeah. and guess what i finished it and i started re-watching it again <laughs> yeah because i've watched that it twice good and, like, and i don't want to overhype it for some people it might not be for everybody yeah uh, it's it might be too cringy it's for very some it's very very absurdist and it's gonna make you uncomfortable if you're that type of person uh but like i said he's taking jokes that you think you think you're ahead of him and he is 12 steps ahead of you in terms of absolute absurdity this veers into like monty python style like it is it it is otherworldly comedy also i mean the way that he uses dramatic tension in the most hilarious and outlandish ways is just unlike anything else there's a a sketch from the first episode um called gift receipt that is pretty much the setup of this thing is like you know you give somebody a birthday gift and they like oh here's the gift receipt you know if you want to exchange it and And then tim robinson starts you know he's he's like well then i guess i'll take the the receipt back if you like it so much (laughs) so that's an snl start like that's a start to a good snl sketch but then it devolves into something that no one could ever predict like it it I don't even want it's to spoil just like, it too much. Yeah, I, I'll just I'll I'll spoil this one sketch because it's on the first episode. But basically, it's just like, all right, he gets you know Tim Robinson fashion. He gets like very like over the top animated. And he's just like, well, then let me eat the gift receipt. Yeah. So he eats the gift receipt, <laughs> and then he's like, my stomach's upset. It must be because you pooped and you didn't wash your hands, and it got on the receipt because paper <laughs> doesn't make your stomach upset. And then so this is the type of this. This is already obviously also absurd. also this episode this uh, sketch featuring Stephen Yun yeah oh. so, so Stephen Yun getting around here's the thing I've talked about this with other shows before it starts SNL style is one character is causing a fuss and everybody else is reacting to that that is so stale at this point that's I mean it's the UCB method it's the Groundlings method and all those people filter into every comedy show that we watch so it makes sense that it's out there his sketches have people flip into insanity it starts with him being the only one that's weird by the end of it everybody is on his side of this absolutely batshit sketch (laughs) except for steven yun like it's that's my favorite kind of comedy i don't want just one guy being like hey i'm crazy and everyone's like hey don't be like that 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 is most of snl now yeah um but yeah it's the writing is really unique the way he words things is sort of unlike anyone else. Uh, every single episode is written by Tim, Zach Kanan, who's the co-star of Detroiters, mm. uh, and then uh, John Solomon, who what used to be at SNL, the writing partner of Will Forte. How That makes more sense than anything I've ever heard in my is, life. Uh, 
is there like a huge cast? Oh, there's so many. There's so many like I, yeah. not cameos. Uh, that's the wrong word. But so many like guest bit, appearances bit that I, come yeah, in. Yeah, I have a whole Cecily list. Strong yeah. is in there. Will Forte shows up yeah, for a sketch. Uh, Tim Heidecker, Vanessa Bayer, Connor O'Malley, the one of my mm. favorite people coming up in comedy. Brandon Wardell. Uh, and Stephen fucking Yun. Like, people want to work with Tim. He's doing shit like no one else. And uh, a lot of people are taking it as an opportunity to shit on SNL. Uh, but it, I think it really goes to show that the people that work on SNL are better than SNL. SNL has to be a lowest common denominator show. Yeah. And they only have a fucking week to work on these sketches. It's it's flawed from the start. The people working on that show get so much hate. And they're a lot more talented than we'd like to think. This is Tim making a show just for himself. And it's amazing. This is like the perfect Netflix vehicle because the episode lengths vary and it's really just like, okay, I have four ep- sketches written for this one and they'll just go on for whatever. And Netflix is just kind of the perfect home for something like that where it's like there is no like quota on time restrictions or anything else like that. So there isn't – I don't think there's a single bad sketch in this entire no. and, show. Like and it, even though obviously it's a sketch show, so there are weaker sketches. Yeah. Because, for example, I think the first two episodes are I think maybe perfect, uh, flawless sketch comedy. Mm-hmm. And then after that it does get a little worse. But every single sketch has something that – Yeah, there's something that I you love. like yeah. – I remember something about every yeah, single there's, sketch. Yeah, there's just the way a line is written or the delivery or the direction it goes. There's always something to grab onto and follow along with. Like I never was lost. Are I, they going to do a second season? I'm I, sure that they will I because so. of because of this getting so much of a buzz from the comedian community. That was the most – uh, insane shit just on Twitter like every like Nathan single Nathan Fielder yeah. and John Mulaney yeah, and people, everybody who's yeah. ever been involved with SNL like, it's it's insane because everybody loves Tim and this is his natural where he should be because Will For- he's he when he was on SNL it was only a year but he carried on the spirit of Will Forte because Will was famous for his 10 to 1 sketches where he would do the same thing. He'd be a bowl in a china shop, and the sketch would always veer in a way that you would never see. So to have John Solomon writing all these sketches is a match made in fucking heaven. And the Lonely Island is producing them. Um, you'll probably agree with this. This has a lot of hallmarks of like an absolutely production. Oh yes, absolutely. Um, <laughs> listen, absolutely. You could have just said it. Uh, it does, but it's not made by them. Uh, and I like this show better than Tim and Eric Awesome show, uh, personally. Well, because this isn't like, I, it almost feels like this has more of a purpose where, while I do like Tim and Eric and like some, I love Eric Andre, stuff like that, but this kind of, it feels a little bit more classic in the way that it's, it's not, it doesn't like rely on like the low production style that adds to the humor of some of the yeah, shows, right. you know what I mean? Where this kind of, it like, it's shot well, it's directed well, like it looks yeah. like it's do, going do to be an SNL experiment sketch. with different styles be, yes yeah it gets yes. Uh, yeah it's very genre heavy there's like one very that's uh, deals and with like yeah it's like an old vhs thing that's just like scrooge saves christmas yeah where he visits the christmas of way F- or the ghost of way future is like this half robot man yeah. <laughs> it's absolutely insane but the, the reason i like it more because i do love tim Nerick and their influence is seen all over the show but like you said this is directed in a very straightforward way so that one when, when it devolves into madness <laughs> It plays a lot better. Yeah, because you're almost set up for the madness whenever it's something like Tim and Eric or Eric Andre. Yeah, and sometimes, again, like these shows are unbelievably influential, but the editing style of Tim and Eric, which was really the work of uh, DJ Doug Pound and like Vic Berger, 
sometimes comes before the sketch itself on those shows. Sometimes mm. it's a, it's so frantic and all over the place that the sketch is kind of sacrificed in the process. This show, it gives you time to develop the absurdity of every sketch. And that's what I love. Because, again, once it devolves, it goes places you never would. There's a sketch that two-thirds of it is just really an SNL sketch. It's like, you know, it's like they do a lot of commercial parodies. It's a commercial for some yeah. spine pills. And it's the classic spine. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Listen, like spine surgery or something. But it's it's the classic rule of three sketch where it's like it's cutting between three different like, you know, the actors in the commercials like I can throw the Frisbee again to my dog. I can lift my kid. And then it's Tim doing some crazy shit. So that's an SNL sketch. Uh, and then he just goes. Do you remember this one? Yeah, yeah. This so is then he's like, one. I can finally get my money back from that music producer who fucked me. And then it, he just goes to the music producer. The whole commercial is over. And he's just like, he's been scammed by Connor O'Malley <laughs> into thinking he's going to be a middle-aged uh, rock star. That, that kind of reminds me of um, Lady Dynamite a little bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, just the absurd, like world breaking shit yes definitely and i i love how traditional like the theme song is like a doo-wop song the little graphics in between sketches are really these understated little like colorful palettes like it's i i cannot get enough of this i show. i love this shit it's not so gonna much. be for everyone i don't want to overhype it i'm gonna see it it's just like it. it's one of those things but if you're like if you are a comedy head then you're going to love yeah this show. but again a lot of people don't like the concept of someone like you know, like a Michael Scott type. Some people don't. Or like I could that see. I could also just... see a lot of people just kind of watching an episode, thinking that's funny, and then just being like, "Oh, I get it. it's the same thing every time." Just yeah, like because it's called. I think you should leave because uh, there's kind of a the through line. There's kind of a through line of Tim Robinson needs to leave the room. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's why they called it that. It's not in every sketch. Like it's very formless. There are some sketches without Tim mm -hmm. entirely. Uh, but yeah, it's a lot of like someone creating an awkward moment and making it way worse than they should. I, I literally like, this is one of my favorite shows I've seen in years. Awesome. I think you should leave. I really hope Netflix. that there's, I hope that there's more episodes before the end of the year. Cause I want, I, I want more That's of my 2019. Point. Yeah. It is only six. So like, it could just be one of those Netflix things where they just like throw some on. Yeah. That'd be cool. Yeah. It probably takes a while to produce. I don't know. Um, we'll speaking see. of, uh, things I like, <laughs> See, I worked on that transition. <laughs> we're, we're going back and forth with the fire transitions. Um, I wanted to do a quick little uh, YouTube corner because I, I, I may have discussed this briefly before this video, but this is my favorite video on all of YouTube. It's one of – I think it might be the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. Um, it is uh, the 92nd Street YMCA's interview with Gil Faison and George St. Geegland. Uh, and this is an interview that was done in a real auditorium. The 92nd Y, if you don't know, has historically been the place of a lot of very serious speakers or interviews happening, like Henry Kissinger. And like, and John Oliver is moderating this interview with Gil and George, who is John Mulaney and Nick Kroll, of course, like deep into character. It's an hour and a half of the best improv I've ever seen in my life. Um, I, I've... I like. Wait, are we okay? Yes. Okay. Are you sure? <laughs> yes. <laughs> power surge. We had a power surge. <laughs> uh, the literally the best improv I've ever seen in my life. Um, particularly John Mulaney 
is on fucking fire in this interview. I have never seen anyone so on fire in my life, except for maybe Andy Daly when he does Comedy Bang Bang and Jason Manzukis is cross-examining him. That's the only comp I have where everything he says is fucking golden. Uh, part of that is because the setting... Uh, these characters are deeply entrenched in New York references and like very specific ones that I don't even understand. But Mulaney paints a picture that's so specific that it doesn't matter if I haven't been to this restaurant. Like, you know what I mean? The jokes still stand on their own. Uh, and John and John Oliver also deserves a lot of credit here because he is, you know, he's billed as and is like a more intellectual comedian. He was a stand up before he did any of his shows. Uh, so he knows exactly what they're doing. He's teeing them up for everything that they're doing. And also the interview questions are written by the characters, Gil and George. So they're also, this was before a uh, Kroll show, right? No, this is, this is in like 2017. Oh, okay. Actually, this is the Broadway show was already out. It was, this video came out the day that their Netflix, uh, Broadway mm. special came out. If you've seen, Oh, hello. If you're a Mulaney fan or, or a Kroll fan, you have to watch this. The production value is so low. Cause it's shot at a YMCA. It's just like, you know, three different cameras, two close, one wide. Uh, they do like a Q and a segment with, uh, audience members. I've, it's like, he's, he's putting up like, like 90 points on like 80% shooting. Like I've never seen a performance like this in my life. Uh, and Nick Kroll's obviously hilarious and like they can bounce off each other. And if, if one of them is struggling with a bit, you know, the other comes in. <laughs> Same with John Oliver. He is so, so good. But the reason this is so good is because they're just trying to crack each other up. They're not trying to like play to an audience necessarily, yeah. except it's, for the New York a, material. It's not a show. It's not yeah. a play. Yeah, but they, like John Oliver is... Uh, historically like a tougher laugh and they are getting him crying in this like he is he is trying to keep it together so hard and they all they're doing is trying to make each other laugh and same with john he's making the other two laugh uh it's i i've seen it like five or six times it's the only thing that has me like gasping every time i watch it i'm not a big like reactor to things usually you find something different to yeah because it's so you know it's so fucking dense like it just it blows my mind more than anything that Mulaney is putting on the best improv I've seen in my life. And that's not even his main thing that he fucking does. Like, he's not even like an improviser. He just is so good at it. Like, I, I well, as as that character. Yeah. And a lot of the jokes are pre uh, like, you know, Mulaney is like and Kroll both have a Rolodex of character jokes for these characters, obviously. But I, I can't even comprehend what they're doing in this. Like, it is high level, like high comedy mixed in with like obviously these characters are perverts and disgusting people. Yeah. <laughs> the it it's un charmed. I'm sure it's unbelievable. I can't recommend enough. If you're a Mulaney fan or whatever, this is kind of an unassuming upload because it's uploaded by the YMCA, uh, <laughs> and it it does have like seven hundred something thousand views. Uh, but this is the it's my favorite video on the internet. They thought they were like actual old men members <laughs> of the Y. It's just, it's immensely funny. There's also another one that is moderated by a guy from the Today Show, and he does a good job, but this is this is a lot better. This is just on fucking fire, a genius of freak of nature brain at work, basically. Uh, cool. I, I can't watch it enough. Uh, I also, you know, we've kind of buried this thread in, in podcast canon, but I haven't seen a lot of movies. <laughs> Uh, I grew up a TV guy. I was strapped. My parents famously strapped me you to a TV. You did see Gattaca. Put on Jeopardy. <laughs> tried to Gattaca. make. Yeah, I did see Gattaca. And the whole time you were like, God, I wish this was a TV yeah, series. Yeah, and I was like, I, <laughs> TV is better. This should be TV. Uh, 
So I, I, I caught up on a classic because, you know, we're doing Seth Rogen stuff this week. We're watching a lot of high school oriented things, even if they don't all take place in high school. What about Fast Times at Ridgemont High? This is a, a genre. Quintessential. Yeah. Yes. Quintessential genre defining uh, high school movie from 1982. So it even was a predecessor to John um, John Hughes's uh, renaissance of this genre where he really elevated it. Because yeah, Well, John like, Hughes has said that he was like heavily inspired by Fast Times. Yeah. Like this, whenever making like Breakfast Club and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. So I learned a lot about candles. this movie that I didn't know. The production of it is interesting because... This is Cameron Crowe's first movie, who went on to, you know, he was on, more on fire in the 90s with, like, Jerry Maguire, etc. American Beauty. Um, to, so, he actually, originally, this was a book written by Cameron Crowe, and it was a nonfiction book in which he actually went undercover at a high school and just, like, wrote shit down and wrote a book about it. Whoa. Turned that into a screenplay parlayed that into a 30-year movie-making career. So this was like a big, big star maker for him. And not only him, uh, Sean Penn, obviously the most iconic character in the movie is Spicoli. Mm. Even if you haven't seen it, I knew about Spicoli. Is this Sean Penn's best movie? Um, hmm. I haven't really seen... I haven't seen Milk. I feel like I should say that that's his best. Is mm. that correct? Am I right? I don't know. So I mean, he this won is, an this Oscar. This is probably the most iconic of Sean Penn. Yeah, roles, definitely. Even over Milk. Well, he won an Oscar for Mystic River. So right. Sean Penn in this is, yeah, he's like a dumb stoner type named Spicoli. Really, I want to give him props for being ugly even as a teenager. Like, it's really impressive <laughs> yeah. that even back then he was grotesque. Uh, and he still, you know, he wedged his way into a very illustrious career. Jennifer Jason Lee. This was a big star maker for her. Mm. She's still around doing shit. Uh, Judge Reinhold. Um, and Forrest Whitaker is Forrest just Whitaker, like a little yeah. bit character in this movie. I didn't know he used to hey, be buffish. Hey, Nick Cage is in there. Okay, I we got to talk about this. Have you seen this movie? I haven't seen this in like... Okay. So like a decade, like to be honest. So, I, I love this movie back whenever I saw it. This, this is Nick Cage's first uh, part ever in a movie. What? He is... Because this is 1982. Yeah. He was cast to play a, a, a more speaking role of Judge Reinhold's friend, uh, Bill's friend in the movie. He was deemed too weird to have this part. So they just took away all his lines and they made him just stand in the background. So you'll just see Nick Cage <laughs> just in the not, not talking there. in the movie. It's so funny. Also, in the movie, he's uh, his credited name is Nicholas Coppola still. Yeah. Because he is the yeah. nephew of Francis Ford Coppola. That's why he's in movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and he hadn't changed it yet. And it was honestly a great move to change it. Because if you saw that guy in a movie, you'd be like, yeah, of course he's a Coppola. He's not going to be in a movie anyway. Uh, this movie disappointed me, though. Uh, it kind of it threw me off because I've seen plenty of amazing 80s high school movies. But like I said, this movie did a lot of the heavy lifting for those movies. So I can't uh, penalize it too much. Right. But it was I wouldn't call it a good movie if I'm if I'm trying to be objective with it. Uh, there are plenty of iconic parts. There's the Phoebe Cates bikini scene. Uh there there's there are good things happening it's a loosely threaded plot uh kind of in the vein of a uh, dazed and confused which again you can see the influence yeah all over uh it's like link later just made a better version of that link later made a way better version mm-hmm. because this movie is loosely threaded and it also takes place over an entire school year whereas dazed and confused is just one day so the thread of that movie is the day uh and which is a lot tighter of 
a construct than a whole year and also not having much of a plot. That is too loose for me unless it's very well written and I wouldn't call it very well written. Uh, there are fun moments. There are good lines. There are also incredibly horrible jokes. Uh, is it raunchy? Very raunchy. Yeah, they're you know boobs. Well, I think I think that might be kind of like the building blocks for the genre there. Mm. You know, yeah, it's that's not, what I'm saying. It's, it's like even have... if it isn't the best, it's like of this course. kind of it was like the first so that one. John Hughes could run. Yeah, this that's yeah. what I'm saying. This is a huge building block movie. It's massively important. I don't think it can... was okay to do stuff like <laughs> I... that in a movie and about high school. Yeah, kids. and you can see it all over. I think I was just expecting more because there are great high school movies after it and there are amazing movies that aren't in high school before it so i thought maybe it was like a perfect marriage Mm -hmm. type scenario it's not but that's fine uh i just couldn't really recommend watching it unless you want a a history lesson well i am you know what i mean i want to revisit this movie this is like one of my mom's all-time favorite movies ever because this movie came out when she was 17. So this was like the idealized version of what high school was. And John Hughes kind of tapped into that too of like something like The Breakfast Club or 16 Candles Uh, that like this is what you always wish that high school was like. I mean, even something like Superbad or Booksmart kind of touches on these themes. But this movie really kind of laid the stepping stones down. Yeah, I don't think there was anything before this. It's established so much. And like I said, there's a lot of good going on in the movie. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw something out there. Two things, I don't like Jennifer Jason Lee ever. Never what? liked her. Whoa! When is she good? She she honestly she's bad in Annihilation until she's uh, no longer a human being, and she's good in Good Time. Yeah, she is. That, that's a good point. She's one of the few good things about the Hateful Eight. She is. I mean, her performance. She's like very. She might be considered the main character of this movie. She's pretty stone faced. She doesn't do a horrible job. She's the main character, but she's not the most memorable character. Um, it's Spicoli. Yeah, Judge Reinhold. This is less of a hot take. I don't like him at all either. I haven't. It's not like I've seen most of his catalog, but I don't like him in this. I don't buy him as an actor. I hate him in both Santa Claus movies, which is really the true gauge of how good an actor is is how good they are in a santa claus movie uh so i i don't know i i guess i had it up on this pedestal which a lot of it is deserved in theory but in watching the movie it's really not great Um, it's just one of those things where like just because something is influential doesn't mean it's great yeah yeah um there's great stuff going on there there is a wistfulness to this movie that even i felt just because you know, don't you guys wish that we grew up in the prime era of going to the mall after school? Yeah, I wish that that was actually a thing. But yeah. instead, we grew up in Tallahassee where our mall well, I mean, was already dying. Yeah, they're just generally dying everywhere now. And there were still mall kids. Like, there were kids I knew who would just go to the mall. But it this this really paints an amazing picture of what life was like back then. And that's the best part of the movie is it is really sort of a slice of life. And I there is a lot of life to this movie. Um a lot of it is cornier than I wanted it to be because I thought that was the angle it was taking. And that is for a large part of the movie. Uh, but yeah, man, just just cruising around, just going for a drive, just like showing up at somebody's house <laughs> to be like, hey, we're hanging out now. Yeah, like the Goonies. Yeah, yeah. It's it's It really is uh, a great picture of a bygone era. I just looked up Jennifer Jason Lee's IMBD and I was just scrolling through it to see if there was anything in there that kind of jumped out. Um but she's just kind of just been like a character actor for a yeah, long time. Yeah, she shows up just... and stuff. That's why I don't like dislike her because it's never like she pretty much never gets leading the roles. Big, yeah, um, she's always she's been kind working of the side. 
person since but... 1976. Yeah, it is kind of a plant alert. Her parents are very in the industry. Hey, she was in Twin Peaks: The Return. Yep, she was with mm-hmm. uh, what's his name? She Tim, was actually uh... she was good in Twin Peaks: The Return. I like I like her. Whenever I see her, I'm not like disappointed. Okay. I'm like, Chantal. I, I just I thought she was horrible in Annihilation. If I'm being dead honest, and I unfortunately I did watch season one of Atypical, and that's not a good show anyway. But she is, I think, the worst part of it. Um, oh, also, she's the uh, the one female voice in Anomalisa. Huh. Oh, oh, yeah. She's in good with voice. well. The thing is, she's in with like a really good crowd of of uh, filmmakers and actors. Like she she makes great choices. She gets like really cool roles. So can't blame her too much. But I do not like her acting. Uh, Nick Cage MVP. He's in the background of maybe to- no lines. Total thirty seconds of screen time. <laughs> Nick Cage is there, and it's just so funny. <laughs> Um, but yeah, Sean Penn is, is, he really is really, really awesome in this movie. I really can't fault him too much. All right. Next. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So speaking of I, I don't know. actresses that make me want to kill myself or kill other people. Oh, that was good. Right? Let's was, talk was, Barry. Yeah. yeah so good. we, yeah, this is a three good. week. Good job by me. Okay. Listen. <laughs> Right, this right. is a three-week catch-up now at this point. There have been three episodes since we last talked about the show. Yes. Um, this is – Barry is the best show on TV right now, hands <laughs> down. It is. It's not even close. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I kind of – this show – keep sending me on this loop where I'm ready for it. At the end of season one, it's like, ah, yeah, I don't know if they're going to be able to hold it together for season two. And season two starts, I'm like, man, this is great, but are they going to be able to keep this up for another, like, for the rest of the season? We just had another big twist happen this past week. Mm-hmm. And, like, at this point, I'm just like, yeah, I'm all in. I know you guys will, I know you have this all figured out. Yeah, so um, let's let's backtrack a little bit. So they've set up, um, Sally's. Oh, I guess spoilers for Barry season two. I, yeah, We're get into spoilers. For Barry. I'm going to do two non-spoiler thoughts really quick okay. that I think that just stick out with every episode that become more apparent to me. A, this is maybe the only show that I think is better because it's shot in digital. Um, Interesting. Because the main critiques you hear of digital is that it's almost too high quality and it's almost uncomfortable to look at sometimes in like for example a close-up that helps the show every time that there's a close-up yeah. you see the pores on barry's face that you see all this graphic detail that you don't want to see that all plays into the message and the theme uh of the show itself i've never looked at it and been like oh i'm glad that's in digital before <laughs> like i've never thought that in my life uh the other thing i want to say is this is a show that's largely about trauma and about mistakes and about reckoning with your own mistakes uh, and Barry's mistakes in this are far worse than anyone else's. Uh, but well, yeah, I, the flashback stuff. Exactly. Is it, but what brutal. I what I really appreciate is that the show doesn't belittle anyone else's personal drama to be like, yeah, Barry's is way worse. You know what I mean? It genuinely will give time to Sarah Goldberg's character or uh, Barry Zuckercorn, yeah. uh, and really play out their own uh, drama without. Without the feeling of, let's just get back to Barry, like he killed someone. You know what I mean? Like this show, you want to spend time with all of the characters. Yeah, exactly. And it and it it doesn't. Uh, I don't know. A lot of shows do that, where like someone's going through personal shit, and then you get back to the character that's actually going through like immense shit, and it's like, you know, get back to the well. The the biggest balancing act of this entire show is the tone, and how it manages to dig into all of these like really really dark themes of death and loss and abuse 
and violence in so many iterations and still be like really funny it, it, the fact that it manages to do that without being jarring and off-putting is insane yeah it is. i i've never seen a, a show pull that off how this does it uh, to be viscerally like grounded with its violence and messy and destructive and just really hard-hitting and still have these moments of kind of like absurd comedy because yeah. it's an absurd premise a hitman wants to become an actor like that's that's crazy yeah that's every, crazy and yeah. it's it still manages to sell it in a really convincing way yeah so we yeah we have to spoil some things we have to talk about specifics so let's just do that now well yeah what i was going to say earlier is if we backtrack a little bit and we dig into sally's whole story of of her ex-husband and the abuse there and kind of Barry feeling like a, a protective boyfriend to her. He wants to be there for her and, and prove to her that not only is he different, even though he's a killer, you know, he wants to, he wants to show her that he's not this abusive uh, person that, that her ex-husband was while still knowing that he has murdered so many people but we also dig into Sally's journey in kind of growing past that and, and coming into her own and feeling the self-confidence to stand up to this guy and to uh, have some sense of closure of what this the, the remnants of this abusive relationship are. But uh, before we even get to that, I thought that it was very effective how they make a commentary on writers and kind of Hollywood as a whole that they almost view trauma as something that can be mined for things with that the are acting good. exercises with the acting exercises yes. it was an amazing commentary on stuff that like people actually there have been like some directors and writers out there they're just like yeah I went through this like really terrible divorce but it led me to write X which won me an Oscar or whatever <laughs> so then it's just like people always do this in Hollywood and the fact that they do these writing exercises where they dramatize things in their own life events is very purposeful because it's something that obviously like with Bill Hader working so closely within the industry he's seen plenty of this like it was yeah. very purposeful that they did something like that and then that leading up to the reveal that obviously this is all very dramatized with Sarah Goldberg's character when her husband when she talks to her friend and then whenever her ex-husband returns back into the fold her memory is, of the events of when she left yeah, how, very different yeah you like basically try and rewrite I mean we all do that in our own lives whether we're conscious of it or not or the not ideal that we, version the, of I, the we idealize everything and we kind of always will rewrite our own history and with our memories to make us look stronger than we actually necessarily were in that yes. situation. Yeah. When I tell my kids about this podcast, it's going to be like the Drew yes. Show featuring two idiots. <laughs> it's going to be like, yeah, Avengers Endgame. Wish yeah. that has many people going to yeah. see it. Once, as, yeah, once we once we did the ep on Avengers, the movie just took off in the box <laughs> office. It was going to flop. Yeah, everyone um, knew it was going to flop. <laughs> but yeah, you're you're totally right. That's a great point. I mean, the the very definition of method acting. The definition has gotten warped recently, and we think like DDL, where like he'll like cobble his own shoes or whatever. The actual definition of that is mining your own memories to craft reactions that are genuine. Mm -hmm. So literally, like all of acting is is this. It's exploiting your own trauma. I mean, just think about the season one moment with Barry when he, I mean, we're already in spoilers, but spoilers, when he shoots his best friend in the car and is so 
just devastated from having to do that, that he not only like has this incredible performance, but we see Bill, you know, we Barry gives a performance in the show, but also Bill gives one of the best performances he's ever given. So that there's like this meta-ness to it that the trauma in the show is informing the performances of the actors and the characters in the show. Yeah. And it, it's elevating both of those things it, it's, simultaneously. It's unbelievable. Like, so, this show's incredible. So this uh, this leads us a little bit to the last couple episodes. So we finally have the interaction between Loach, who is the partner of the uh, cop who was killed last season, uh, finally getting together with Barry. And... He's already compromised Fugues, and Fugues is already working with him to... Yeah. To catch Barry, um, red-handed, and essentially. instead of using this moment to kill Barry or turn him in or something else like that, he wants Barry to kill his ex-wife's new lover. And it's it's genius how they do this because it's a twist. They 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 do it as a twist. The whole time we're led to believe that this guy is a cop and he's being a good cop and he wants to catch Barry because he killed someone. But and he's scene- like, I'm I'm. Following through on the seeds my... are planted there, though. That obviously he's very bitter about this. He just yeah. like lives out of a quinceanera store. <laughs> that <laughs> <laughs> these seeds are already yeah, right, planted yeah. there. That it all it's a personal works. Vendetta. It all works, and then that leads us to the latest episode, um, Ronnie slash Lily, which is one of the best directed episodes of TV that I've seen in a very it's, long time. It's written and directed by Bill Hader. Yeah, and it's... not only is it a great story for. Uh, Barry and Fugues and digging into sort of their backstory and and some of kind of the relationship that they have to each other because we kept we keep getting throughout the season we keep getting these flashbacks to Barry and there was the big reveal of what went down in that street uh, while he was in on Afghanistan. duty yeah, yeah. The, the, he killed an innocent person so they've been fleshing out this backstory and we've been there's been more and more revealed about who Barry really is and that he is trying to change like he is, he doesn't want to kill people anymore and which and leaves... his role in that is that he is the one who keeps pulling him back yep. and stop and keeps stopping him from taking those steps to it's, move on to a different It's literally like the definition of like a toxic abusive relationship that like he is the one who's having like putting all this negativity into Barry's life but Barry's dependent on him because Barry like Fuchs is the only person who knows everything that Barry right. is and everything that and Barry understands has done. Him. And yeah, he can actually talk to Fuchs unlike he can talk to anybody else in his yes. life. So like he doesn't have anybody else. So he keeps kind of crawling back to Fuchs for these things and Fuchs keeps getting him into these uh these situations. But the fight sequences that we see here in well, this latest episode. It's one long fight. It's it's a hit that goes wrong. And also, genius job by them, how they establish Bill Hader wearing the ski mask so it can just be literally anybody. Oh, um, the stunt, yeah. Yeah, stunt the stunt guy, the stunt yeah, guy yeah, was yeah. great. <laughs> yeah, that's... And then shout out to Ronnie and his daughter, Lily, for... His daughter, Lily, is honestly the most terrifying creature. <laughs> she is not a human being. Yeah, this she goes kind of, perched on a roof like a goddamn gargoyle. <laughs> it's crazy that this episode wasn't directed by Hiro Murai because it gave me, like, Teddy Perkins vibes yeah. a little bit. Just with this sort of otherworldly, like, monstrous little girl. Yeah. <laughs> Just it, It's... It's a sidestep of an episode where we're not following the main story, and Bill uh, Barry has to deal with this 
crazy, crazy karate girl, monster karate girl. Uh, and I just love how the whole episode is structured around that while still focusing on Bill and Fugues as kind of like the emotional core of the episode. Because the whole episode is just – it's one long fight, mm. you know, with Bill fighting the, the, the guy – and then fighting his daughter, it's just it takes over the entire episode. And there's just so many great moments of of comedy and terror and absurdism and violence throughout. Because the fight, it's messy. And yeah. Barry gets his ass kicked. And just so many things about the way they did the, the fighting choreography in this was so well done. Um, I mean, I just I love how they just took the time to think about like not only how the fight was going to look but where it was going to be like what this house was going to look like and kind of the setting for it and then as the fight moves outside of the house and the other locations that we visit what the 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 structure of that fight would be like in these different locations and just little details yeah like the it's super just... glue on the on the yeah. steering wheel and then the the knife wound on his back it's just little things like that you don't really see too often in uh television action scenes, well, okay, fight so, scenes. i mean it's weird to say that this felt like it was taking a breath when it was like a breathtaking action packed episode but like you said how they they aren't worried about trying to cram in plot that the fact that we had this entire episode which was just one long fight sequence there's only three episodes left i mean we talk about this with game of thrones wrapping up about how it almost feels like it's like they're just kind of going through the motions of getting plot yeah, out there checklist. to finish up the show that with barry there's like yeah we're just gonna like just spend a whole episode with just this intense fight yeah. sequence going on and then we'll get back to henry winkler's relationship with his son Hell yeah! like that's i love this show so much that it's willing to take these beats um i did also i mean i did want to talk about uh the henry winkler relationship that he's actually turning into more of a character this season there's a lot mm -hmm. of uh not side characters necessarily but people who are more on the periphery last season that are getting a little bit more time to shine this year this season around and i'm really loving seeing stuff like that like um especially with the chechen mob yeah. and everything hank. that's happening there with hank yeah I'm it's almost kind of uh taking the route that bojack took in his most recent season where it's not that barry is a less interesting character because he's obviously the most interesting character in in the show but he is a toxic character like mm -hmm. he is he has elements of unforgivable toxicity to him so to give a lot of different people their due time uh, is a really smart move, I think. Mm. All right, let's wrap it up, boys. This has been your weekly catch-up on We Bought a Mic. We talked Barry, we talked Twilight Zone, we talked you... Uh, we didn't, talk, you we didn't talk Vampire Weekend. I we guess we'll, save that. We we'll yeah. save that for next we'll week. We'll save that for next week. So, yeah, let us know what you thought of everything we talked about and uh, stick around for Detective Pikachu, John Wick, Booksmart, lots of cool things happening. And also Aladdin, Aladdin, also Game of Thrones, instant reactions. Uh, we'll be talking about the last three episodes. We have three episodes of left of Barry and of Game of yeah. Thrones. And I don't know what I'm going to do after that. So, yeah, stick around. Let us know what you thought and give us a five star review on iTunes, please. And thank you. We bought a mic, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. And we bought a mic at gmail.com with all your thoughts, recipes, um, <laughs> embarrassing videos of you coming on your own face mm -hmm. could be
good too. So anything like that works for us and works for you. So where can we find you guys online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Letterbox at Hunt Mobley, H-U-N-T-M-O-B-L-E-Y. Um, you can read my review of Seth Rogen's pick flick, pick flick, penis flick, <laughs> super bad mm-hmm. um, flick. up on there. <laughs> Dick flick. That's yeah. good. That's good. There you go. Uh, yeah, I'm Letterboxed, uh, Drew, D-I-M, Twitter, Drew, D-I-E-T-Z-E-N. Uh, Spotify, you know, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can Google me. Mm-hmm. You can find out my middle school cross country results. If you Google me, <laughs> click on the second Hunter Mobley. The first one is like a pastor in like fucking Missouri. Fuck that guy. Yeah. And Look I'm at, me. at Calderness, Twitter, Instagram, Letterbox, And yeah, we will see you next week. Take care. Goodbye. So long. We love you. Bye. Bye.